you wouldn't mind pulling out your copy of scripture and turning to John chapter 14. If you don't have a physical copy, please pull out your phone and look it up online, John chapter 14. Just a little review so we're all on the same page. In John chapter 12, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die. Now they didn't have any framework for that. They believed and rightfully believed that he was the savior that God had promised through the Old Testament prophets who, who would become king. And so they, they believe that Jesus is going to become king. How on earth is he going to die and become king? Immediately from that conversation, transition into John chapter 13, where Jesus is washing their feet. Again, they believe that he is king, rightfully, and kings accumulate servants for themselves. Kings don't become servants, and there he is washing their feet. It discombobulates them totally. In that same meal, after he's washed their feet, he predicts, rightfully, that one of them is going to betray him. Then he predicts that Peter, the leader among them, is going to deny even knowing Jesus. So on the heels of chapter 12, I'm going to die. Chapter 13, I'm washing your feet. One of you is going to betray me. The leader of you is going to deny me. He has to say, chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Because they are troubled because of all that he said and all they're getting ready to experience. The big question hanging over John chapter 14 is how are the disciples supposed to carry on the work of Jesus without Jesus? The disciples were early adopters. Those of you who bought an iPhone as soon as it was created, you're an early adopter. Most of us had to wait until, you know, it worked or to make sure it wasn't like the mark of the beast or something, something like that. Uh, and the disciples were early adopters. Jesus is doing Messiah things just as those prophets had predicted. And the 12 disciples at his invitation were saying, yes, we believe that. They believed that he was going to be king in Jerusalem, which meant that they were going to become his ambassadors. They were really going to represent him. And all of his teaching was essentially, here's my kingdom policy. Here's my kingdom culture. Now you go and embody that and you go explain those things to others. And we saw in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10, he actually sends them out to do this. In Luke chapter 9, he sends out the, just the, the closest 12 uh, and they go out and they, they live out his kingdom ethic and his kingdom power and kingdom. Uh, authority and, and policies by healing the sick and casting demons out and teaching people about the kingdom of God. And they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, this worked. We watched you and then we went and did it ourselves just as you intended. And then in Luke chapter 10, he sends out a bigger group of 72 disciples to do the same thing. And they're totally blown away. So they imagine that this is what the rest of their life is going to be. Jesus is going to be king in Jerusalem and they're going to be essentially living out that kingdom, representing it, uh, advising people, helping people understand and, and, and demonstrating the power of the Messiah's kingdom. But he's just told them that he's going to die and go away. So it doesn't make sense. How are we going to be ambassadors of somebody who is not king in Jerusalem? How are we supposed to carry on the work of Jesus without Jesus? And, and that's what he spends the rest of chapter 14 explaining to them. And I there are a lot of words in chapter 14, and so here, here's a summary of everything he says, and hopefully I show this to you by the time we're done. But I'm just going to give you all four main ideas, and hopefully you can see them on the way. First, how do we carry on the work of Jesus without Jesus? We keep his commands as acts of love. Jesus will be present with us through the Holy Spirit. 
He leaves his peace with us and he returns to the Father in victory and not retreat. Verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, keep my commands. John would go on to later write in his epistle, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. Now, when you hear, keep my commands, I I want you to resist as hard as you possibly can, just picturing a list, 10 commandments style of all that Jesus told us to do. He did tell us a lot to do. But when you hear, if you love me, keep my commands, the more accurate thing would be to read all of the Gospel of Matthew, and at the last sentence in chapter 28, after you read it, you would say, if you love me, keep my commands. And then you would read all of the Gospel of Mark, and at the last chapter, or the last sentence of the last chapter, chapter 16, you would say, If you love me, keep my commands. It's the whole of his teaching. It is the what he wants us to do, but also included is the why and the how. We've all bumped into church people who were doing lots of righteous actions, but we felt less than righteous after interacting with them. They were representing Jesus in the sense that they were doing some of his specific commands, but when you interacted with them, it did not feel like you were interacting with Jesus because probably their faith was just a compilation of do this, do this, don't do this, do this, do this, don't do this, disconnected from the why Jesus would want us to do that and then how he went about it. So when he says, if you love me, keep my commands, it's the full picture. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down. And the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. If you love me, do what I'm asking you to do for the reasons I'm asking you to do it in the way that you saw me do it. See, the danger of just compiling a list of Jesus' commands and starting to check them off is that we'll fall into the same trap that the Pharisees did. We'll make a list, and you'll often start with the commands as you make a list, uh, the commands that A, come easily, most easily to you, uh, the easiest to obey for you. Uh, You'll also list at the top the commands in which somebody that uh, hurt you did not do. Those will be at the top of the list, and we will. We'll, We'll start checking them off. I grew up in a small country church in Southwest Missouri and and in our elementary Sunday school class, there was a poster board on the wall and it had our names all written and then beside our names out to the top were things like uh, brought your Bible, uh, brought an offering, um, you know, which meant you stole an offering from your parents that morning, uh, brought a friend, memorized the verse. And so every Sunday at the beginning of Sunday school, our teacher would, you know, start going through the list. And did you bring your Bible? Yes. Did you bring an offering? Yes. Do you memorize your verse? Yes. And you get a little felt star. None of that cheap stuff that they have nowadays, like a real felt star uh, on your name next to the thing that you, you did. 
And so we'll take the list that Jesus gives us in the scripture, do this, do this, do not do this, and we'll make our list and we'll start going and we'll start giving ourselves stars. Yeah, I'm doing this one, I'm doing this one, I'm doing this one. The problem is that our commitment to the top of the list often blinds us to the unchecked, unstarred commands at the bottom of the list. The, the stars at the top excuse us from not having stars at the bottom. And then what the Pharisees did is then they took the, the list of things that they were doing, the things that they had checked, and they would go and compare their list to other people around them. And if people had not checked the same boxes that the Pharisees checked, then they deemed their faith inferior to the Pharisees' own. So when Jesus says, be careful that you don't try to pull a speck out of someone else's eye while you have a plank coming out of your own eye, this is what he's talking about. You can't take the top of your list, which you are checking off very good, be blind to the bottom of your checklist, which you are not doing at all, and then judge other people because they have not starred the ones that, that you have starred. And so we fall into a real dangerous trap when we disconnect the commands of Jesus from the context of Jesus' life. It also pulls his commands outside of the relationship that he wants to have with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The point that Jesus is making, though, is if you say that you love me, you're going to do the work that I've called you to. You can't just claim to be godly and not care about the mission of my kingdom. Verse 16, and I'll ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and he will be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Now Jesus has told them he is going to leave them. He is their head, their boss, their Lord, their teacher. And he is gone, but he has not removed from them the responsibility of the mission. So in their minds, he still wants them to go out village to village, just as they had done back in Luke chapter nine and 10 to do his ministry. Only he's not going to be there to protect them from the world's venom and they feel exposed. But he says, you don't need to feel exposed because I'm going to send an ambassador. I'm going to send an advocate for you, the spirit of truth. Now, remember earlier in chapter 14, Jesus has called himself the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. Now he's going to send the spirit of truth. That's why we can say that the spirit of God living inside of us is the presence of Jesus. He has sent the spirit as an ambassador to us, his ambassador. He is the truth. He sends the spirit of truth and and the spirit is an advocate, one who comes alongside of us to, to help. Uh, years ago, uh, I, uh, I was in the hospital, uh, I had surgery, and uh, I went into the hospital on a Sunday. Uh, Amanda made me go to church uh, that day, because uh, uh, she's like, I don't care if you're dying, you're, we're going to be in the house of the God, of Lord God, you know, we're going to be there. And so we went to Sunday school, and after Sunday school was over, I'm like, hey, listen, I know like, your zeal for the Lord is just off the charts, but I'm dying, literally. And uh, we're going to skip big church. That's what I called it, big church. And we're going to go to the hospital. I need you to drop me off. Something wrong with me. And so she did. And uh, long story short, uh, we, uh, uh, I go to surgery that day and I wake up in the hospital room and I'm wearing uh, different clothes than I went into surgery with, which is a very, that's a vulnerable feeling. <laughs> so... 
part of the clothes I'm wearing is a pair of red socks. Now, I've never been in the hospital. I just think, you know, they put a bunch of other clothes on me. I guess they put a pair of socks on me. And they said, uh, the way to get out of the hospital fast, really get recuperating, is you got to get up, out of bed, and you got to walk. And so that was my mission, is just to do as many laps around the hospital floor as possible because they said... You know, that's how you get to go home. And the first couple of days in the hospital, if you're not dying, of course, are kind of nice. Everybody wants to serve you, your friend, you find out who loves you and is coming to visit you. Uh, people send you flowers, people bring you food that doesn't taste very good, but you've, you know, it's nice. Day three, you get this weird smell on you that you cannot get off until you get home. And so I was ready to get out of the hospital about day three. And so I just would walk as much as possible. Most of the time, Amanda or somebody else was there to walk alongside of me. And, and you know, I got the pole because I'm all still all hooked up to the wires and everything. But there was one day, day three or four, I can't remember. Uh, she was at home. We had little kids at the time. And so she was at home. I was by myself, but I'm ready to get out of the hospital. And so I'm doing my laps around. And I walk by the nurse's station, and one of the nurses, not my nurse, one of the nurses, though, starts screaming at me, like really screaming at me. What are you doing? I don't know. You know, I mean, trying to do what you said. Told me to walk. I'm walking. I'm not a rocket scientist, but you told me to walk. I'm walking. You're wearing red socks. Yeah. Yeah. You put the red socks on me. She said, you don't know what the red socks mean. You didn't write that on the little whiteboard in my room, what the red socks meant. You, 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 know, you just told me what drugs I was going to be on today. That's, what do the red socks mean? The red socks mean you cannot be out here by yourself. You have to have help. You're a fall risk. Um, yeah. Okay, well, help me, you know. <laughs> this is Jesus' way of saying to the disciples... You're wearing red socks. You have to have help. You have to have somebody coming alongside of you. Now, the truth is, we have taken most of the teeth out of our Christianity. And what we call being a Christian does not require any help. I don't think that you needed the Spirit's power to get here this morning. I mean, maybe there was a long line at the donut shop and you needed the spirit to help you be patient through it. But for the most part, you just got here yourself and there's nothing wrong with that. But we have created a Christianity and where we don't need somebody to come alongside of us. Therefore, most of us don't know the ministry of the Spirit of God that Jesus is talking about here. And we sure don't know the ministry that is a necessity the way that God is, Jesus is talking about it here. And so I guess I just want to say this out loud to myself. If my Christianity doesn't require any help from God's Spirit, I don't think that it is Christianity. I'm not sure what kind of zombie faith it is, but it is not following Christ because he said you're going to need help and I'm going to send you help I have not left you alone I'm going to send this advocate to you the spirit of God verse 18 I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you before long the world will not see me anymore but you will see me because I live you also will live on that day you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them 
and show myself to them. So he continues to speak to their fear, which he said out loud in verse one, do not let your hearts be troubled. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come back to you. Now he's speaking in a couple of different levels because he's already said in verse two, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So he's talking about one day in the future, he is literally gonna come back for his disciples, but he, he probably is also referencing resurrection day, which is just a few days from John chapter 14. They're going to see him again. A lot of the world is not going to see him, but they are going to see him resurrected. And that's what he means when he says, when you see me living, you also will live. You're going to be resurrected in the same way. We also see that they don't need to be afraid that they're going to be left alone because of the unity between the father and Jesus and the disciples. Look what he says In verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. Verse 20, on that day, you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. So kind of confusing. I am in my father. I'm in you. You're in me. The point Jesus is making is you're not alone. The father and the son, we are with you. And how are they with you? the disciples through the ministry of the advocate, the presence of the spirit. And then he repeats verse 15, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Now, let me say that again slowly. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. If you read it with the right inflection and you kind of tilt your head, it can sound like what Jesus is saying is that God loves only those who love him. But we know from 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So the only reason we can love God, Christ, is because God has loved us first. So what does he mean? Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. I think the key to understanding that is the thing that Jesus says at the end of that verse, and I will show myself to them. I think what Jesus is talking about is experience. Those who have and keep the commands of Jesus, who read all of the gospels and at the end say, if I love him, I'm gonna keep everything that he's just said. Those people keeping his commands will experience the love of God. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells that great parable, the parable of the prodigal son. I've told it to you before. Even if this is your first time at church, you know the story. A young man is tired of living underneath his father's thumb. That's what he feels like. And so he says to his father, just give me my inheritance, what I'm getting when you die. And the father does it and he runs off and spends it immediately and and finds himself at rock bottom. Once he's at rock bottom, he comes to his senses, Luke 15 says, and he says, I've already burned the bridge as father and son because I told my father I didn't really want to be his son anymore. So maybe my father will accept me as a servant because my father's servants, they have more than enough food and a place to stay. Those things I don't have. And so he goes home and you remember the story instead of his father scolding him, his father throws his arms around him and starts kissing his face, which is hard for us to picture. And, and, and they throw a big party. The father in Jesus parable loved his son. He loved his son when his son was feeling that youthful, I got to get out from underneath my father's thumb. He loved his son when his son went off and was spending all of his inheritance. He loved his son when his son was at rock bottom there in a faraway country. And he loved his son when his son came home and he 
put on a coat and put on his shoes and put a new ring on his finger and throw him, threw him a big party. But the son could not experience the love of the father when he was far away because he was far away. It was only when he was close at home that he could experience love. The father's love never changed. The son's experience of that love changed. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them will be loved by my father. If you decide to take seriously, I'm going to read the gospels and I'm going to do what they say. You will experience the Father and the Son through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you, therefore, will experience the love of God because the scripture says that God is love. And so when you are experiencing God, you will always be experiencing his love. Now, this is not math. This is not a formula. If I want to experience God's love more, then I better do, 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 do. And if I feel distant from God, it, it must mean that I have done something wrong along the way. It's not math like that. Remember in the Old Testament, Elijah, the great prophet, had just experienced this amazing victory. He, he had overcome uh, hundreds of prophets of uh, uh, the false god Baal, and there was this, this showdown. And God had shown himself to Elijah and everybody by, by bringing fire down from the sky and consuming the offering that Elijah had made for God. It was an amazing thing. And often we have amazing highs with God. We fall into pits right after it. And Jezebel, the evil queen, is chasing Elijah and he is afraid. And he finds himself far away and in a cave. And God comes to visit him and speak to him. And God brings an earthquake. But Elijah points out that, that God was not in the earthquake. And then there's a fire. And he says that God was not in the fire. But listen, the last time God had been in the fire... The fire had come from heaven, but this time God is not in the fire. And then God speaks to Elijah with a still quiet voice. Sometimes when God feels distant, it's not because you haven't been putting stars next to the commands of Jesus. It could just be that God wants to take you out into the desert so that you can learn a new way to hear and experience him. So it's not math, but if we really give ourselves to doing the things that Christ has said, keeping his commands, you will know the love of God. He says, I'm going to show myself to them. I don't know if you've thought very much about why Peter asked to walk on the water with Jesus. You remember that story? There's a storm and the disciples are in the boat by themselves and Jesus starts walking across the water to them. And they think he's a ghost at first. And when he gets to the edge of their boat, um, Peter says to him, hey, invite me out there. I don't know if you've thought about why Peter would do that. Um, uh, there's no like theological, I don't, to my knowledge, there's not some weird prophecy in, you know, Habakkuk that says something. I'm, just if you don't mind, I just, I think uh, Peter was like, it would be freaking cool to walk out on the water with Jesus. <laughs> and I think that's his only motive. Jesus is out there. We do some pretty ridiculous things with Jesus. I bet if he invites me out there, I can walk on the water too. I think he just did it for the 
I wonder if it will work. And, and you know what happens. He gets out of the boat and, and he does walk on the water for a little bit. Jesus says that if we will really, if we will move into his teaching, he will show himself to us. I think that is Jesus' way of saying, I will invite you out onto the water. A prayer that I've been praying recently, and I, I, I would love for you to hold me accountable, is... I want to experience God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in every way that he would be pleased to let me do that. And so if it would give God pleasure and glory that if I'm praying with some people because somebody is sick and dying and God would heal them in an instant, I, I would like to know the experience of being that close to God's miraculous power. If God would be pleased to let me be there. If like in Acts, at one of our prayer gatherings, we were just so filled with God's spirit and God's passion for people that the walls in this building began to shake. I would, I just love to be in the room when that happened. If God would be pleased to let me be there. You know, so many of us, if, if we can just have real talk right now, we are so bitter at God right now because he, we feel like he is holding out on us. You know, because we have our checklist and we're putting stars next to all the things that we do for God. And then we're looking at all of our unanswered requests. And it's the, the oldest trick of Satan's in the book. Literally on the first couple of pages, he says to Adam and Eve, God, He's, he's got a lot more to offer you than what he's offering you right now. And that is our primary accusation uh, uh, against God. But what I'm afraid of is that when I transition from this life to the next life and I stand before him and I'm able to see everything from beginning to end the way that he sees everything from beginning to end, it's not going to be me who's going to be able to say to him, hey, you really held out on me. I think he's going to say, you know what, Curtis, you held out on me. I wanted to show myself to you so many times. I wanted to pull back the curtain between heaven and earth when you prayed or when you gathered people to pray or when you opened up your scripture. But you held out on me. You were too busy. You were too weak in the flesh to endure the, the first three minutes of reading the Bible, which are the hardest, and get to the sweet stuff after about minute four, you just moved right on. I don't think we'll be able to say that God held out on us. I, I think he'll say, I would have been pleased to show myself to you over and over and over and over again. But you held out on me. And I just want to be the kind of person, and I'd love to go to the kind of church where we're just, this is not acceptable. That from February 2nd, 2020, until we see the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves, that we took him up on every available, I will show myself to them, that he would be pleased to give us. Verse 22, then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, which don't you know that that Judas told all of the apostles, listen, hey, if you are writing down our stories, 
you better make sure that people know the difference between me, the good Judas, and that other Judas. And so John obliges him here. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And as Jesus so often does, totally ignores the question. Often because our questions are distractions from Jesus trying to drive home the point. And so Jesus just keeps going. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. This is the miraculous and, A-N-D, of John chapter 14. We've already read verse 2. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. It's both. It's and. We have a future where he is. He is preparing a place for us. He has not abandoned these disciples. He's working on their behalf, even though he is away. In our future, we are with him. And, and in our present, he is with us, both father and son. They have come to make their home with us. You are with Christ in every possible way. You are surrounded on every side, hemmed in, The psalmist said, future, we're with him. He's moved in with us now. Verse 25, all this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. Um, He will teach them. Spirit will teach them on behalf of Jesus because Jesus did uh, uh, did not prepare them for every possible scenario. We see this in Acts chapter 15, there's a big discussion among the first Christians. Those of us who are not of Jewish descent, do we have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? It's a big deal. If you're going to barbecue stuff today for the Super Bowl, and any of those are pigs, you should care a lot about Acts chapter 15. If you like shrimp, which parentheses is disgusting, but that's just my personal opinion. That's not from God. You know, when Paul said, this is just me, that's not from God. That's what just happened. But if you like shrimp, then you care a lot about Acts 15 because they're deciding in Acts 15 whether you can eat pork or you can eat shrimp and on and on and on. And every uh, jot of the Old Testament, they're deciding whether if you're Jewish or Gentile, whether you have to do it. And, and what they decide at the end is if you're Gentile, you don't. But their reasoning is it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Jesus had not prepared them from that scenario. And so they're working it out. The Spirit is teaching them. Here's how to take all that Jesus taught us and showed us and how to apply it. We have to do this as parents. Um, You know, there's nothing in Romans 12 about how to put parental controls on your kid's phone. There's nothing in there about when your kid should get a phone. So you have to do a, Holy Spirit, teach me what you want. Teach me how to apply this scenario which the scripture has not prepared us for. And he said, not just teach, but remind you of what I've said. And this is, uh, and I'm, this, we're almost done. Uh, this is such a simple gift. I don't want to pass it over. It's a simple gift from Jesus because it's an acknowledgement that the disciples have not remembered everything that he has said. And I just want to 
say that out loud, that God had, Christ had prepared for their imperfection. I think that many of us have fallen into a dangerous trap and it's why we don't feel that God loves us right now because our math goes like this. God is perfect. God loves perfection. I am not perfect. God does not love me. And I think a pretty good handful of us today are wearing the coat of I love God, but God does not love me. And this simple acknowledgement, the Holy Spirit will remind you. God is prepared for your imperfection. Now, like Paul says in Romans, we don't take that grace and drive it into the ground. But God's love is disconnected from your behavior. Because God is love. And to say that God does not love you because of something that you have done or are not doing is extremely, extremely prideful. That any of us could change the nature and character of God. God loves you. I think it is the one thing that you can bet on from the pages of the word of God. And... Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, do not be afraid. We could spend 10 Sundays on this verse alone, but we're not going to. Uh, he loves them and he's bothered that their hearts are troubled. And notice that he is blessing them with his peace. It's the same person who said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, who has offered them this peace. Verse 28, you heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. In summary, Jesus is saying, trust in God. If you knew me, you would know that this is according to the plan. I am going away, but this is according to the plan. And also notice that the prince of this world, Satan, is a part of the plan. Satan has already entered Judas to betray Jesus. Uh, Satan has orchestrated the scheme to, to bring Jesus down, ultimately to have Jesus killed. That is Satan's plan. But notice what Jesus says. He has no hold over me, but he, Satan, comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. When Jackson, our 14-year-old, was uh, four, I coached his basketball team. And you're trying to teach four-year-olds basketball drills. It's just really, it's, it's nice in practice. But once the game starts, you have one goal as a coach. Make sure that your kids shoot at the right basket. They get overwhelmed when they get that ball and they'll just throw the ball at whatever basket they're closest to. And so you're just yelling at them. You're jumping on the sideline. No, 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 that's, that's the bad guy's basket. The good guy's basket is over here. And what Jesus is saying here, if you don't mind the, the simple earthy um, uh, metaphor, is Satan thought that he was shooting into his basket, but we tricked him and he scored one for us. Satan was orchestrating this whole plan to bring Christ down. And we turned it right around on him. Instead of a victory for him, 
That was the victory for us. I mean, that is authority over your enemy. Not just that you can overcome their plan, but that they were so dumb compared to you, you used their plan to accomplish your plan. That's what the father and son did. And, and the disciples needed to hear that because after they leave this meal where Jesus is sharing all of this with them, they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to get on his knees and he's going to be in such anguish that he'll sweat drops of blood. And that does not look like victory. And then the mob comes for him. That's not victory. He's tried with false witnesses. Not victory. Ultimately, he'll be tortured. Pilate will say, crucify him. They'll strap the cross to his back. They'll watch him, at least John, watch him walk it up to the hill outside of Jerusalem known as Golgotha. And, and John, who's writing this gospel, will watch him die. Nothing about that sounds like victory. But Jesus had already told him, don't be confused. Satan shot that in our basket. And then you know what happens Sunday. He resurrects from the dead and everything is different after that. How can we continue the work of Jesus without Jesus? We keep his commands as acts of love. He is present with us through the Holy Spirit. He has left his peace with us. And we know that he has returned to the Father, not defeated, but victorious. Let's pray.